0: So today it's going to be just me. Uh, Arik is in Puerto Rico and Jules is busy doing uh, other stuff. So we're going to be talking soon about a bunch of classics of sci-fi, including Dune, Neuromancer, maybe some of Heinlein's work, uh, Starship Troopers, uh, who knows what else. But Neuromancer is coming up soon. And one of the key themes in Neuromancer is a theme of addiction. So... Addiction to the metaverse, addiction to being plugged into the matrix. In the case of the Neuromancer, in our case, maybe something like uh, internet addiction or social media addiction. Um, Addiction to body modification. As someone who has a lot of tattoos, I understand that kind of sense of after you get one tattoo, you want to get another one, and so on and so forth. In Neuromancer, the types of body modification proposed are... Radical, but not altogether far fetched. Um, you know, growing uh, lab made organs that you can graft onto and into your body, um, you know, cyborg like modifications of your eyes, um, adding blades under your fingernails. And folks in Neuromancer take that really far and and just demonstrate a kind of addictive behavior around that. And then simple like drug addiction, too. Because Neuromancer is kind of this this gritty, um, underground sci-fi. And, and the the book that... You could argue that was the book that kicked off the cyberpunk movement. Um, so in preparation for that, I thought I'd do a short solo podcast on addiction. Based on Anna Lemke's book, Dopamine Nation. So Anna Lemke is the... Basically, the head of the addiction center at Stanford. She's a psychiatrist, and she wrote a really interesting book um, that serves as essentially a practitioner's guide to addiction, and not just addiction the way, not just addiction in an externalizing way, addiction in the way of any dopamine dopamine rich activity that you find yourself pursuing when you don't necessarily want to and it goes against your best interest uh, in a way that harms yourself and others. So it doesn't have to be just like heroin addiction. You know, it can be an addiction to food. It can be an addiction to video games. Um, It can be an addiction to social media or browsing the internet. Um, When you're on your phone late at night and you know you should put it away, but you're still on it that's a form of addiction because you're doing something maladaptive something that you may not want to be doing but you're compulsively uh, doing it so this will be a useful episode both in terms of informing the discussion on neuromancer but also just like for all of us managing our own uh, maladaptive behavior patterns and understanding ourselves a little bit better um as far as read more goes, and and reading the reading rebellion, the rebellion that is choosing to read instead of browsing social media, um, engaging in you know quick hit, cheap news media, um, throwing slings and arrows at people who don't care over the internet. How this factors in is there are probably behaviors you're you're engaging in that are taking the place of. Or blocking time off from uh, things like reading that could really benefit you. So unseating those negative behaviors can help you to expand the amount you read um, and just generally improve the quality of your life. And there's a lot of like subtlety in this topic. We'll talk about like for example, we'll talk about the pleasure pain balance and the dopamine system and how the feeling of pleasure is intrinsically followed by a feeling of pain and vice versa Um, and how it's generally safer to pursue activities that defer pleasure but those can be addictive as well in their own right Um, we'll talk about the dopamine system and and how it works and, and the the level of dopamine released by different activities Um, We'll talk about. We'll talk a little bit about how to intervene on addiction. Though this is an extremely complex topic and one that is really hard to get right. I can't say that um, in my own life I've I've gotten it right. Um, You know, I've known a lot of people who were badly addicted to um, various things, but especially like hard drugs, and um, it's really hard. To intervene when someone is is badly addicted to hard drugs and it's um it really feels like there's no right answer because when you push them to change you get kind of a counter will um resistance get a lot of pushback um when you you know when you open up and you're like there for them in a more uh Compassionate way, sometimes you can be exploited or manipulated to support their habit inadvertently. Um, So it's hard to find a right answer uh, in those cases, but I'll talk about my experiences there. Um, And let's just dig right into it. So the reward system in the brain consists of a pathway that goes from the ventral tegmental area to the nucleus accumbens excuse me um to the prefrontal cortex so the ventral tegmental area is in your limbic system which is involved with a lot of different things but primarily like a center of emotional processing and your prefrontal cortex is like your center of executive functioning and willpower so if you want to go really deep into the biology here, what I would recommend is Andrew Huberman is this um, biologist at Stanford, and he, he, had, he did a really deep episode on the mechanisms um, and, and biology behind um, the reward system. So I highly recommend that episode. I would listen to it you know, twice with a pen and paper uh, and take it slow. Um, With his background, he's able to go really, really deep into the biology there. Um, As far as this goes, what what it's important for you to understand is that the dopamine system works somewhat like a pleasure-pain balancing scale. So, Activities and substances that are rewarding release dopamine in our brain's reward pathway. The release of dopamine is then counterbalanced by a shot of craving, or pain, that brings us back into homeostasis. Over time, the pleasure response reduces and the pain response increases. And beyond that, over time, what you, what you find is the scale can become permanently tipped, or not permanently, let's say like semi-permanently tipped, towards uh, pain which creates a circumstance where you're always kind of off balance and you're trying to, like, return to uh, equilibrium using various substances. So, you know, you may have heard of uh, tolerance, like drug tolerance. That's what that is, is like that reduction in pleasure for the same quantity of a substance and an increase in pain following the administration of that substance. So this reciprocal relationship between pleasure and pain is called the Opponent Process Theory. Basically, uh, in in the words of the scientists who discovered it, any prolonged or repeated departures from hedonic or affective neutrality have a cost. The cost is an after-reaction that's opposite in value to the stimulus. So our uh, hedonic set point can change over time and our vul- vulnerability to pain can increase as we continue to use uh, dopamine-rich sub- substances or engage in dopamine-rich behaviors. So some examples just for, for your reference, you know, let's say that sex increases dopamine levels in the brain by 100%. We'll use that as a benchmark, and we'll look at some, some other examples. So, nicotine increases your dopamine levels in your brain to about 150%. Cocaine increases it to 225%. And amphetamine increases it 1000%. Chocolate increases the dopamine in your brain by about 55%. So just to give you a, a sense... so we talked a little bit about tolerance but tolerance there's there's a deeper state beyond tolerance that you can kind of reach through excessively hedonistic behavior and that's called anhedonia so basically it's like you have hit the dopamine button so many times you you flooded your dopamine receptors so often that your receptors have atrophied Um, And now you have a decreased sensitivity of reward in general, to reward in general. So basically, like, you're unable to pursue pleasure for its own sake. And just like a personal anecdote on this, so um, I found myself in a state recently of listening to um, a lot of like emotionally charged podcasts of a very specific narrow type. Um, and previously I had a very wide range of podcasts that I would enjoy but over time like the specificity of this stimulus um, created this like cycle of craving for me where I was unable to enjoy any other uh, kinds of podcasts and you know you guys may uh, identify with this and experience this yourselves where you know, maybe there's a particular food that you, you really like and you just find yourself constantly just seeking that one specific thing. Um, you know, or you just keep having sex in the same position, like again and again and again, or, you know, whatever it may be. Maybe you're, you're addicted to like a particular song. I mean, I've experienced this and it's the worst thing ever where there's a particular song that's like scratching your itch. You listen to it again and again and again with diminishing returns of pleasure and an increasing amount of craving. Of that particular type of stimulus and obviously like there comes a point where you can't find more of that particular type of stimulus um so it's 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 interesting it's interesting the number of it's i guess it's interesting to see the quantity and quality of stimuli in our sensorium and how we're constantly in a cycle of like adaptation Uh, tolerance and opponent process with like just an infinite number of stimuli at any given time like we have these like webs of relationships with all these different uh, forms of stimulus and and um, we just have to constantly manage them and as we'll talk about later he so pushing on the pleasure side of the hedonic balancing scale gives you a pain response pushing on the pain side actually will give you a pleasure response um, we will, we'll get to that later, but as far as like the management of your varied relationships with the myriad quantity of stimulus that exists in, in your life, um, it just gets really complicated and delicate, you know, it, it's, there's not a simple answer. It's not just like, oh, stop eating chocolate and start running marathons because you can come to a point where. Even that's addictive. And then obviously there's even further question there, which is when you're talking about harm to yourself and others, you're valuing harm to yourself over perhaps another value. So as an example, let's say that you prioritize a moral intuition that involves contribution, right? And you're whatever painting the Sistine Chapel. Um, yes, maybe you're a workaholic, you're lying on your back every day painting the Sistine Chapel and, you know, you're damaging your eyes and you're, you're, you're hurting your joints and all of this stuff, but ultimately you're not optimizing for harm reduction in yourself. So there's a, there's a qualitative moral aspect to this, which is hard to pin down. Um, so it's just, it's just worth considering. Like there's a lot of complexity in this. Or, or on the flip side, let's say you're a chef, um, you know, and you've decided that, you know, enjoying a lot of good food is, is important for your, for your contribution. Um, or let's say you're not a chef and you just happen to value personal enjoyment um, above your, your health. Now, I'm not a radical relativist, but I think you have to justify why health is worthwhile versus um, enjoyment. And in my opinion, the reason why it's worthwhile is because when you're in good health, you're able to uh, enjoy and engage with your life better. You're able to squeeze the, the juice out of life more. You're able to contribute more. Um, and... Various factors like that It also feels good to be healthy. You're also a burden on others. But there, there are good arguments you can make that support hedonism. I mean, I think for me personally, having gone through extremely hedonistic periods um, and having found sto- a stoic type of outlook to be more beneficial, what I personally find is that hedonism hollows itself out and uh, leaves you ultimately unfulfilled and empty whereas a stoic and contribution-oriented mindset is more sustainable even if it's imperfect and can still be abused um, and metamorphosed into something unhealthy it's harder to metamorphose that into something unhealthy as opposed to kind of an empty hedonistic pleasure-seeking um, approach So we can talk a little bit about uh, habits and habit cycles here because they're they're relevant. So cues, responses, um, rewards—they're they're the the core stuff of the habit cycle. So as an example, I, I used to live in Chicago, and on the way back from work, I'd pass a cigar shop. So I'd see the cigar shop, and that would be my cue. I'd walk in. I'd have a nice conversation with the guy there. He was uh, a uh, real dry British guy with long hair. Um, we'd chat. I'd buy a cigar. I'd take in like, the smell of the cigar shop. Then I'd walk out, smoke my cigar, get a hit of nicotine as a reward, which would then cause me to associate the cue with the reward and then I'd, I'd move on. And there's there's other aspects too, like Nir Eyal talks about like as you go through a habit loop, investing further. So in the cigar shop, I buy a cigar cutter. I buy a torch lighter. Um, I know the guy's name. He knows my name. So now I'm invested. The next time I come around, I see the queue. I go in, I invest further. Um, and I continue to deepen my habit of smoking cigars. And In fact, at a certain point, I was smoking multiple cigars a day. Um, So it's a good illustration of just how how the habit loop works. And what I found is when I started working from home, I found it a lot easier to quit cigars than you would think. Um, Because I just wasn't seeing a cigar shop every single day while walking to the train. Um... A good example of this is like drug use in Vietnam so a lot of folks who use drugs in Vietnam when they came back to the States they stopped using drugs which is not what you would expect when you're thinking about like hard drug addictions like a heroin addiction Um, but that's what was observed because the cues the environmental social uh, and sensory cues that triggered drug usage were disrupted. So one of the best ways to um, to break an addictive pattern is to disrupt those cues. Though it's it's imperfect because wherever you go, there you are. I mean, we knew a guy, Arik and I, really, um, really nice guy who was addicted to heroin, stopped using it, went to rehab, moved, but then fell in with the wrong folks and died of an overdose. Um, And Gabor Mate has some interesting things to say about this wherever you go, there you are element of addiction. Um, Where he basically contends that early childhood wounds um, disrupt the pleasure pain balance for some people, which causes them to um, self-soothe using... Drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, other things like that. Um, Beyond that, there can also be just a temperamental difference that's not rooted in trauma. Um, And beyond that, I would say there's just a fundamental restlessness of the human spirit. Kind of a Buddhist angle on things where you could say like, we always implicit not always it's easy to implicitly operate from a place of there's a solution there's something that's going to make me happy there's a state outside of this that if i reach that state sensory state social state financial state i'll have made it and i'll be happy when in reality this intrinsic restlessness of the human spirit never ends um, there's a stoic meditation where you you imagine you're living somebody else's dream life or you imagine the person whose dream life you're living more accurately. Um, and it's useful to illustrate this point because no matter who you are, there are lots and lots of people for whom your life is their dream life. And you probably know a lot of people for whom that's the case. Um, and yet, it's easy to find yourself uh, restless and and seeking for something more, no matter what your position in the pecking order is. You know, so if you're out here in Silicon Valley, let's say you you sell a company for ten million dollars, and after taxes, you know, you split with your partner, you take home three million each. Really, that's nothing. Like in the ecosystem of Silicon Valley, that's an extremely small uh, exit. Okay, so let's say it's $100 million. Okay, now that's a, a measurable exit, but for a VC-funded company, that's almost the lowest acceptable exit where a company is considered a win in a venture capital portfolio. Now, let's say you do a billion-dollar exit. Well, that's great. Now you're, you're a unicorn company. Um, what about someone who who's, has a $3 billion company or a $10 billion company or a $30 billion company? I mean, Elon Musk is now worth, what, like, over $100 billion? Maybe, maybe, I mean, I don't want to get this wrong, but it also doesn't, it's not the most important fact to get right, but $200 billion? The point being is, like, even if you get to that point, you're still going to be like, oh, I wish I was more uh, creative. I wish I was more um, fit. I wish I I had a better family life, like, you will never escape that restlessness and i think this is related to addiction because we're all titillating ourselves to death we think that the restlessness at the core of our spirit can be resolved using um some kind of sensory input and the reality of the matter is it has to be um, compassionately attended to on its own um terms and it can't just be um, it can't just be fixed either by running fifty marathons or by doing heroin. Well, I think you're better off running marathons than doing heroin. The marathons are are also not going to fix the fundamental restlessness and suffering and misalignment um, that's at the core of your spirit. But anyway, not to get too philosophical about it. Um, so the pleasure-pain balance. Another thing I wanted to talk about on this uh, topic is the pain side of the equation. So I've been one of these people, and I'm sure you know people who, you know, and this isn't flattering, but just put it out there, who look down on certain vices and kind of elevate other behaviors. And and again, I'm not a radical relativist. I think certain behaviors are better than others, for sure. But you know, let's say you look at someone who's like running a marathon a day, like let's say Cameron Haynes, who I think is awesome, versus someone who's eating like a pizza a day. While ultimately, I do think it's better to run a marathon a day. After a certain point, I think it's as compulsive and as addictive and, uh, you know, unwise a behavior as any other, right? It's as much of a uh, sensation-seeking, pleasure-seeking behavior um, as as any, you know, vice that you might look down upon more easily. And you see this even with dogs. So one of the experiments that established this pain-centric... Um, response in the opponent process involved dogs where they'd like shock a dog and at first it would be like really um, jarred and it would be like really scared and then they'd shock it again like you know a few days later and the dog would actually be like excited and then over time like the dog would be excited to get shocked before it was even shocked so it's it's just, um, it's worth noting. Like earlier, I was saying it's hard to manage all these relationships you have with stimuli in your life. Um, and I've definitely been in states where I'm on a good track working out. I'm working out, let's say I'm doing jujitsu three days a week, and I'm lifting two days a week, and I'm feeling great. And I'm really feeling great. Like I'm really, really feeling great. So I'm like, okay, why don't I box on Saturday and then I'll do jujitsu after boxing, but why don't I lift three days a week, do jujitsu four days a week, and then box on Saturday? But then what if I do some jump rope too? And there've been times where I've gotten up to like working out like ten days a week. Um like on like, you know, multiple times a day and da 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 da. So ten workouts a week, I should say, not ten days a week. Uh, but you take my point and it's obviously unsustainable and unhealthy, and it always ends in an injury for me personally um, because I don't build it up the right way, and it comes from a pretty compulsive and sensation-seeking place for me. Um, so I've personally like fallen prey to this. And on the flip side of that, what happens is I get injured and I fall off for weeks and weeks. Not totally, but significantly. Um, and the same with work. Like I'll go through phases where I'm like hitting it super, super hard. Um, and then at some point, I'll kind of like cross a threshold where it becomes unsustainable because I'm pursuing it compulsively, and not strategically, and I'll fall off for a period of time. So how do you cope with this, both both on the pleasure side and on the pain side? How, how can you manage um, these relationships you have with various stimuli? So Anna Lemke has a really convenient uh, acronym and her acronym is dopamine. So D stands for data. So the first thing you wanna do is understand what you're doing, what stimuli you're engaging in, why, when, what the cues are, how often, how how are these things interfering with your life? How are these things supporting you? What are these things doing for you? Um, The second is O. So, objectives. So, as I was kind of saying, um, as far as data goes, on the tail end of that, we do things for a reason. Um, For me, I work out because it makes me feel confident. It makes me feel strong. Um, I like the challenge of it. Um, I like what it does to my self perception. Uh, it makes me feel uh, grittier. It makes me feel um, like I can be resilient and handle things. Um, all great things. All fantastic things. Um, so the question is, if I was going to have a healthy balance with working out, how could I achieve those objectives without, um, you know, compromising my compromising my health or or doing harm to myself or the people around me, if that's what I'm prioritizing, because we discussed that ambiguity and subtlety in that earlier. So the P stands for problems. What problems are being caused um, by your addiction? And also what problems would be caused if you stop? important to do both and understand both so if you're replacing the behavior you can go ahead and um, solve the problems you're trying to solve with the substance as well as solve the problems that you're solving through your creating through your use of the substance a stands for abstinence so you need abstinence to restore your homeostasis and with abstinence will come an ability to experience everyday pleasures again it'll, it'll start to ameliorate that anhedonia um, four weeks is often sufficient as a period of abstinence to really make a massive difference in the way you feel some patients don't feel better after a dopamine fast um, and for those patients what you have to do is you have to go and seek psychiatric treatment um, and definitely like if you need help in this process, seeking out help from a psychologist or psychiatrist is not a bad thing at all. Um, M stands for mindfulness. So mindfulness is really important because it saps the judgment from you as you undertake this kind of challenging process of detaching from high dopamine stimulus. And It's also important because you're better able to see the relationship between cues, rewards, responses, um, and your investment in that habit cycle. And uh, if you're interested in developing a mindfulness practice, I recommend the Waking Up app, Calm or Headspace, uh, or go to your local Zen center or uh, Buddhist temple. And I stands for insight. If you do abstain for four weeks, you're going to get clarifying insight into your behaviors. And you're going to get insight that's not possible while you continue to use. Um, N stands for next steps. So with that, basically you have to decide what relationship am I going to have with this stimulus? Like, how often am I going to do it? Am I going to do it? Am I going to hang out with people who do it? How am I going to avoid the, the cues... Um, so there, there is some evidence that people who are addicted in the past can return to using their drug of choice in a controlled way. Um, but for a lot of people, abstinence permanently is also a really good way to go. I mean, that's the Alcoholics Anonymous type approach. And then E is experiment. So, you know, you go out armed with a new dopamine set point, and you experiment with how you're going to achieve a better balance with all these different things that you have a relationship with, you know, drugs, sex, gambling, coffee, uh, the TV, uh, podcasts, like music, like food, um, everything. But more specifically, whatever it was you're trying to address with this process, and you want to be careful because it's easy to engage in this abstinence violation effect where you kind of massively escalate your usage after a period of abstinence. So important to be aware of that. And that's it. That's that's the uh, that's the process that NLM Key would advocate for helping you to reestablish a healthy relationship with various kinds of stimulus. Um and we'll talk more about addiction in future episodes because it ties intimately into our interests on this podcast. But particularly leading into the NeuroMancer podcast, I thought this would be a helpful little primer. If you want a deep dive on the biology, go to Andrew Huberman's podcast. Um if you want a deep dive on the psychology, listen to um uh, podcast episodes with Anna Lemke in them as a guest or Gabor Maté. The Tim Ferriss one in particular was was really good. Um and generally, I hope you all find a better balance with, um, all the, all the things we love and enjoy in our lives. You know, it's important to live an enriched life of stimulus, um, but also do so in a way that's, that's fulfilling and meaningful and doesn't sap your ability to ultimately like enjoy your life, um, or live a meaningful life, both. Um, so thank you for listening. Once again, I'm Ion. Um. I am pursuing and helping you guys pursue a doomed but defining task, and that is the task of self-perfection. Uh, we are trying to encourage people to read more and read more deeply, so in the spirit of that, check out the book Dopamine Nation. Also check out In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts and "Dopesick," um, as well as the Alcoholics Anonymous uh, guidebook. All worthwhile to take a look at. Um, as far as the app updates on that, um, the reading counter, like your ability to daily log reading, that's been coded. Um, Ari is in Puerto Rico, so once he gets back after January, we're gonna do a few hackathons on it and try to try to move it forward. Um, so we're chipping away at that, but you know, working full time but The challenge we have is the same as the challenge you guys have. Like, being, um, you know, exhausted type A overachievers, working out here in Silicon Valley, trying to make something of ourselves, having our relationships, trying to stay fit, um, trying to, you know, stay in touch with our families, make friends, hang out with friends, um, do recreational things once in a while, while also working on this side project, moving it forward, and reading um, for the podcast, is a lot of stuff to do, and same with all of you guys, you know. So we're trying to figure it out, just like you guys are. Um, and we're generally doing it. I mean, we're 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 doing it. We're chipping away, and um, yeah, look out for an episode on Dune soon, as well as Neuromancer. Uh, we'll be doing more Orwell as well, um, Animal Farm and 1984, um, and I hope you guys have a great weekend. Goodbye.